Open your Bibles with me, please, to um, the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, um, second book of the Bible. Um, and um, I'm, not a, um, I'm not a golfer. How many of you guys are golfers? Uh, you probably watched the Masters uh, recently. Uh, my first round of golf um, actually took place since I've been at uh, Gracie Van. It took place in November of 2005 at the Carpenter's Cup. I could not have played with a more uh, gracious group of guys, Jim Federico, um, Kevin Wright, and Jim's brother, Tony, took me under their wing. The good thing was it was a scramble. I don't think they played any of my shots all day. I was greatly humbled. I was relieved when the day was over and uh, realized that golf is totally of the devil. And uh, <laughs> so this year, being thoroughly sanctified, when the invitation came again, I said, nope, uh, that's all, that's all right. The game shamed me and sanctified me simultaneously last year. Well, if you, um, if you watch golf, you watch sporting events and so on, you know that corporate America often piggybacks on athletes and celebrities by advertising their products through corporate symbols that we all recognize. I mean, it's not for nothing that Nike has paid Tiger Woods millions of dollars to wear a black hat with a white swoosh on the front. It's an easily identified and identifiable symbol. You can travel around the world, and you immediately recognize in any language Coca-Cola. I heard someone say two decades ago that uh, three words are recognized around the world, Jesus Christ, Elvis Presley, and Coca-Cola. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they said. We uh, immediately recognize and identify the golden arches, those golden arches pasted on a red backdrop, easily identified. The power of corporate symbol is all around us. Um, and growing up in my day, if an athlete, particularly an amateur athlete, landed his picture on the box of Wheaties, he had reached the pinnacle of acclaim, uh, particularly Olympic athletes. Uh, if they made it to the Wheaties box, you know that they were extraordinary. In fact, we are confronted with symbols almost every day. They, they regulate or attempt to regulate how we drive. Um, there are merge symbols. There are stop signals. There are traffic lights. There are symbols for curves. There are symbols um, uh, to, to slow down when, uh, when it's wet. There are symbols for when the bridge is uh, icing and so on. Um, and if you attend a, a sports event, if you've attended one recently, um, you know the emotion of when the, the flag is unfurled and the crowd stands to attention and with one voice seeing the star-spangled banner. No matter, excuse me, no matter how many events I've attended, no matter how many times I've heard the anthem, there's still a rush of emotion to stand and hear and see that powerful symbol of our nation's freedom and of living life under God's good providence. If you've attended a, a memorial service, a funeral service for a veteran, there's nothing quite as forlorn as the sound of taps at a cemetery, a 21-gun salute, and then to watch in somber dismay as the flag is carefully folded and presented to a family member and simple words are uttered, uttered the president thanks you for the service to the country. Powerful symbols. Well, the Scripture is filled with symbols as well, and sometimes we, we miss the significance of them. In fact, religious symbols... Um, capture quite a bit. Uh, we think of the Star of David. We think of the Muslim Crescent. We think of uh, the cross, for example, powerful symbols that stand for religious, uh, religious faith and religious beliefs. 
Well, in Exodus, uh, Exodus rather, chapter 16, there's a, there's a symbol there. It's the symbol of manna. In fact, the Bible speaks to us and communicates uh, often very simple but powerful truths through the medium of symbol. And the symbols always come to us not, not as an encouragement to self-attainment. They don't come as a checklist for spiritual accomplishment. In fact, the symbols are objects of instruction. They're, they're objects of instruction that point us away to ourselves, to the simplicity of following Christ. The text itself informs our understanding of the, simple, of the symbol. And there's a difference between being an object of devotion, that would be idolatry, and being a symbol that stands for gracious truths that God wills to communicate to every generation. The, the symbols in many ways point to a life of surrender, a life of will dependence upon the Lord that often serves as a blueprint for spiritual growth. Surrender and will dependence, that's really the starting point of the Christian life. It's like the, uh, the hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We, um, we could take the religions of the world, and there are many, and divide them basically into two very simple categories. Those who believe that religion is composed of something we do for God, and those that believe that religion is basically a response to the grace of God that's offered to us in Christ. And often, though, we struggle with what the symbol really desires to communicate. Because instead of bowing before the name that's above every name, we often strive to make a name for ourselves. Instead of living in simple, grateful dependence upon the Lord and an uncomplicated lifestyle, we have a, a near national infatuation with self-help programs and methods and techniques. Uh, the self-help industry is... $9 billion a year in climbing. It grows by 12.9% every year, according to a recent Business Journal article. It's a huge industry. You ever been up late at night and watched infomercials ad nauseum? Ever ordered any fitness equipment off the... Uh, ever ordered any real estate courses on no money down? Need to talk to Steve Brown about that. Well, I'll tell you what I did one time. I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, I... Uh, was up one night, ill, think I had pneumonia or something. I don't know. Seriously, I was up one night and, and ordered the Jack LaLanne juicer. Um, we were barely subsisting. And I proudly announced to Melinda the next day a new regime, a new program for Vim and Vigor. And she said, what? I said, it's the Jack LaLanne Tiger juicer. And she said, you didn't. I said, oh, but I did. And it'll be here in less than a week. Well, I still have that juicer. It's hardly been used, and I'll make a deal with you tonight uh, just as soon as this is over. Well, I, I've succumbed to the infatuation with programs and techniques. But, you know, the Lord never calls us to a how-to list. What He calls us to is a life of simple surrender and dependence upon Him. Exodus chapter 16 introduces us to the story of manna. Um, it's the first introduction to the story, and if you know anything about manna, you know that the, uh, the, the Hebrew for manna literally means what is it. It had no existence apart from the power of God's creative handiwork. It did not exist apart from the gracious provision of the Lord. And if you'll follow with me as we look together, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible in Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. just want to make some quick observations from the text. Um, speaking of God's uh, delivered people in verse 1, Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, 
which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we had sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. In verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for He hears your grumblings against the Lord, and what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings which you grumble against Him, and what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. In verse 9, Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation, the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for He has heard your grumblings. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I've heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. Manna, what is it? Had no existence apart from God's creative word. He provided it for 40 years. If you wonder what it's, uh, what it's like, go down to verse 31. There's a brief description of what manna consisted of and what it was like. The house of Israel named it manna. And it was like coriander seed, white and Its taste was like wafers with honey. They called it manna. What is it in verse 31? In verse 4, God called it manna from heaven, bread from heaven. Bread from heaven, that which God provided. Well, the simple, powerful symbol of manna, which did not exist apart from God's provision, teaches a very important message. And that message located in the text is that there is more to life than being well-fed and satisfied with material things. There's more to life than being well-fed, nourished, and satisfied with material things. Israel's eyes were blinded to the grace of God and redemption because they encountered hardship in the wilderness. If you were to go back just one chapter, chapter 15, the Lord had just miraculously parted the Red Sea. They went to the other side of the Red Sea and Miriam grabbed a a tambourine and they began to praise and worship the Lord and sing to the Lord, the horse and the rider, he is thrown into the sea. Who is like our God? They began to praise him. By the end of chapter 15, however, they were grumbling because they were thirsty and they came to a pool of water that was bitter and they complained against the Lord. The Lord healed the waters, satisfied their thirst. And when you open chapter 16, they're grumbling again and wondering why the Lord had ever delivered them to begin with. Deprivation reminds us very powerfully, very clearly, 
that there's more to life than being well-fed and materially satisfied and accomplished. Uh, comparison, I think, uh, material comparison, is the, the parent to grumbling. And several times in the text we've read this evening that Israel grumbled. In fact, if we were to follow the life of Israel in the wilderness, their life was marked by almost an uninterrupted series of grumbling. They grumbled against what the Lord provided for food. They grumbled against the leadership that the Lord had provided. They accused Moses and Aaron of leading them out into the wilderness to kill them. But ultimately, as they were complaining against circumstances and providence, the text says ultimately that they were complaining against the Lord. They had simply forgotten in moments of stress and deprivation of how much the Lord had poured out His grace upon them in His delivering work of power. We could turn back a few chapters to Exodus chapter 2. and There the people groaned under the bondage of servitude. In Exodus chapter 5, they were beaten and they groaned for deliverance. And God comes with a deliverer. And through extraordinary displays of unprecedented power, He sets His people free in fulfillment of His covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now they're on the journey to the land of promise. And the moment they encounter hardship, they begin to level accusations against the Lord. Now, God made us a dichotomy. We have a soul or a spirit, if you prefer that. But we live in a body. And it teaches us that there's more to living than a one-dimensional aspect of life. You can live but not have meaning and purpose. Our little dog, Zena, whom I affectionately refer to as nuisance, um, lives but completely lacks meaning. I mean, we let her out in the morning, we let her out in the afternoon, we let her out at night, we feed her, we, uh, we give her fresh water. On occasion, we even break down and bathe her. And uh, she's a little peek-a-poo. I think there's more poo than peek there, but um, that's beside the point. She lives, but she does not lack meaning. And listen, when, when we pursue to the, to the deprivation of our souls, to the deprivation of, of being nourished spiritually by God's grace in Christ, when we pursue the physical and material and make that the end all and the A, we begin to live a dog's life. We live, but we lack meaning and purpose. It's the kind of thing that, that Solomon says over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know what the theme word is in Ecclesiastes? Vanity. Chasing the wind. Emptiness. And he talks about how he had attempted to satisfy the longings of his heart through hedonistic pursuits, through pleasure, through buildings, through accumulation, through servants, through music, through planting vineyards. And at the end of the day, he surveyed all that he'd given his life too, and he said, it's vanity, it's vanity, it's vanity. It's like chasing the wind. We're in danger of living a dog's life when we say to ourselves, like the rich farmer did in Luke chapter 12, eat, drink, and be merry. I've got a lot laid up for a long time. And the Lord says, you fool, does your life not consist in more than material possessions and material satisfaction? Satisfying the physical appetite while neglecting the the, uh, the uh, soul's appetite, the soul's hunger for the Lord is a major issue in the Bible. Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, other books, the psalmist. Um, my life's verse is uh, 1 Timothy 4. It's become my life's verse, life's verse since I turned 50. 
is 1 Timothy 4, verse 8. Bodily exercise profits little. But I tell you, when I get back on this Jack Lalune juice, uh, Jack Lalune juicer, though, it's going to be a different story altogether. That is, if someone doesn't offer a hefty sum for that baby tonight. Um, and I suspect they won't. 1 Timothy 4, 8 says, uh, Bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable to all things. The Lord calls us to be wise stewards of the gifts, graces, and opportunities that He's given us. We are called in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, the, the temple of the Lord. I'm, I'm not minimizing that, but what I am saying is that you and I are a part of a culture that has maximized the physical, that has maximized the temporal, that has all but ignored and denied the eternal. We breathe that into our spiritual lives. And manna is a vivid reminder then. It's a vivid reminder now that there's more to life than living comfortably. That's the message. That's the temptation that confronted Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. He had fasted 40 days. I think the text indicates that he was tempted repeatedly over 40 days. We just have three temptations recorded, but there were more than that. It was a constant bombardment appealing to the misuse of strength. And the first temptation was, as he was literally starving, the text says that he was hungry after 40 days of fasting, and you can well imagine the temptation came to take stones and to turn them into bread if you're the Son of God, to misuse and to misappropriate power for the satisfaction of self in independence of the Lord. That was the heart of the temptation. I've never been tempted to turn stones into bread. Never. Just not a thing for me. Um, you know, the other temptation is go to the, go to the top of the, uh, the temple and throw yourself down if you're the Son of God. We went to the top of the Empire State Building in Manhattan in June 2003, and I was not for a moment tempted to scale the fence and throw myself off. Never been a temptation for me. But what I have been tempted and what I am tempted to do is to meet sometimes legitimate needs by the strength of the flesh as opposed to gratefully depending and trusting on the Lord to meet my needs when He will, as He will, so that He is honored in the provision. First message of manna is there's more to life than just gratifying physical desires and living for the material. Second message in Exodus 16, though, is that God provides not only food for the body, but He also provides food for the soul. That's why verse 4, it's called bread from heaven. Bread from heaven. Manna, in a very real, tangible way, reminds us that God satisfies the spiritual needs and desires of our life. You may have heard of the um, the independent documentary, Super Size Me. Uh, it was written, produced, directed by an independent uh, film director, Morgan Spurlock, who for 30 days ate at McDonald's morning, noon, and night three times a day and never failed to supersize the order when they asked him. At the end of that 30-day period, he had put on 24 pounds. He was suffering from violent mood swings, depression, and his liver was in catastrophic condition, almost bordering on failing or shutting down. It took him 14 months to get off the 14 pounds he had gained in 30 days by eating a steady diet of nothing but fast food from McDonald's. 
supersize me. Well, what was true physically of feeding on junk is also true in a very real way when we feed our souls junk as well. God has provided the riches of heaven's manna. He's provided truth for life. He's provided a treasure trove of grace in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we neglect that diet. We neglect bread from heaven to the deprivation and starvation of our own souls. Um, Nothing wrong with Christian romances. Uh, Nothing wrong with reading end-time fiction. As long as you know it's end-time fiction and not based on solid theological exegesis. I love to read great historical biographies. Um, Billy Perry, you in here, Billy? Raise a hand if you're in here. Uh, Billy and I enjoy a common love for William Manchester, who wrote um, a magnificent biography on Winston Churchill, two volumes, a great biography on Douglas MacArthur um, called American Caesar. He's just a terrific author. At the end of the book on American Caesar, MacArthur, now an aging, stoop-shouldered man, shuffling now instead of walking with that military uh, stride, stands before West Point, where he had gone through as a student without demerit, where he had served briefly as a superintendent prior to going to World War I. He stood before the class at West Point, and he says to this class, he says, as I move into autumn and the twilight of my life, And the leaves from the trees begin to drop their foliage. I often go back in my mind's eye to a distant battlefield. I smell the acrid smell of the cannon fire. I hear the blast of the bugle signaling charge. I survey valor on the battlefield. And in my mind, I always come back to my days here on the long plain at West Point. I read that speech. I was moved to tears and I said to Melinda, Honey, you've got to hear this. What a grand speech from an old warrior. Wonderful literature. Great stuff. But I'm telling you, nothing compares to the Word of the living God. Nothing compares to this text, the Scripture that David says is sweeter than honey. The teaching of it is more to be prized than gold and silver. There's nothing that compares to the text of God's Word that that is sharper than a two-edged sword that lays bare my heart, the intents and motives of my soul. There's nothing comparable to the truth of the living God that's able to nourish and correct and discipline and lead us in a life that that brings honor and glory to the Son that sanctifies our lives before uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember in John 17... Jesus comes out of the upper room. We celebrated the Lord's Supper this past Thursday, Maundy Thursday, John 13 through John 17, the upper room. And Jesus lifts His hands toward the Father and prays that God would sanctify them through His truth. Your Word is truth. There is no substitute for truth. And as we ingest the truth, as we open the Scripture, with, with, if not literally, but figuratively, on bended knee and a posture of submission. God nourishes and nurtures our soul in the riches of His grace to us in Christ. The text, I think, provides kind of a commentary on the rhythm that refreshes and nourishes our souls in Christ. Manna underscores the need to seek the Lord daily, to look to the Lord in fresh dependence daily. God provided manna six days. On the sixth day, 
He provided a double portion which they would collect because on the seventh day they were to rest and trust the Lord. There's a rhythm in that of six days of work and then a day of, of rest, renewal, and worship. There's a rhythm there that we ignore to the peril of our own souls because we need a day of worship and rest to recalibrate our souls, to reorient our lives to eternal values. The things that really count and matter in this life are not found on the bottom line. They're found in an eternal perspective. And the rhythm is laid out here of the daily need and of the rhythm for rest and worship and renewal. God in His grace provided a pattern then. And God in His grace provides a pattern for us even now. The rhythm is a gracious provision to reorient our lives while we journey in this wilderness of faith. Manna revealed God's provision for the body that God sustains and God provides. But manna also reminded them that God sustains and nourishes our souls. And we respond in grateful dependence. And there's a third and final message in the text. Actually, this text takes us to the New Testament. You won't necessarily have to turn there, but you might make a mental note of this or turn if you like. The third message of manna is that manna ultimately points us to the bread of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ and His provision for us. John chapter 6 records an incredible miracle. Jesus takes five loaves, little barley loaves, uh, about the size of the back of a man's hand and two small fish, the kind I always catch when I go fishing. And uh, he takes these five loaves and these two fish and, and he lifts his eyes toward heaven. He prays. He asks the Lord to bless this and he multiplies it so that over 5,000 men are fed. doesn't count women and children. Some commentators suspect there could have easily been ten to 15,000 people there. Five loaves and two fish. And understandably so, the people were wowed. I mean, that's an incredible miracle to take five loaves and two fish and to feed people sitting in groups of 50 and for the disciples to spread the food. And then God in His kindness has them to gather up what's left over. And there's 12 apostles. And guess how many large baskets are gathered up with leftovers? Twelve baskets. God fed them to the full. Some of those people didn't know what it was like to ever go to bed satisfied. They didn't know what it was like to ever have a full stomach. But God fed them. The Lord Jesus fed them through a tremendous display of His grace and His power. Well, John chapter 6 says they came back the next day. And John comments on their coming back the next day and says that Jesus says to them, you're following me not because of the signs that authenticate who I am as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Redeemer, as the Deliverer. You're following me because you ate bread to the full. In other words, you're following me for physical, material reasons. The symbol, they missed the symbol. They missed the symbol. The symbol was designed to point them past the physical bread to the living reality of a relationship with God through Christ and the riches of His grace that's poured out upon us in Christ. John's Gospel is built around seven signs, seven miracles. The sign stands for something. It points to something. When you, uh, when you go on vacation and maybe you run a map quest to wherever you're going, uh, Destin or California or wherever, uh, you don't load up the family and get in the car and hold the map up and say, we're here. We've arrived. This is it. 
No, you understand the map is a means of pointing you to the destination. And they missed the point that the bread, really, was to point them beyond satisfied physical appetites to the reality that God had come down in their midst and was offering himself as life for the world. That's what Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread of heaven and I give my life so that you might have life. Guys, every time we break bread, we are reminded just in the simple act of bowing our heads and invoking the Lord's name over the provision that God is the one who supplies our needs ultimately. He may use the, the, the second causes or the instruments and so on, but ultimately we know the Lord is the one who supplies. When we come to the Lord's table and the bread is broken and the cup is distributed, we're reminded that bread points us beyond material realities to an ultimate spiritual reality that's found only in Christ, that His body was broken so that ours would not be, that He was wounded for our transgressions, that He was bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement of our peace was upon Him, that He was wounded for our transgressions, that the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. We're reminded through a sign of the riches of God's kindness to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in John 6, they grumbled. They grumbled again because somehow or another, they missed the sign and complained against God's provision. What was really behind the pursuit of more bread? I don't know, but I, I think, I suppose, that perhaps they were looking for, for a Savior who would meet their felt needs. Maybe for a Savior that would make them feel better about themselves, boost their self-esteem, provide for material needs as opposed to humbling themselves before the Savior who is also Lord and taking up the cross and denying themselves and following Him. Maybe what was really behind it was a love of self and the hope that Christ would satisfy their felt needs. And maybe felt needs are shorthand for the idolatries of our heart. The manna reminds us that God provides for our physical needs according to His provision and timing. And He calls us to live in dependence upon that reality. The manna also provides us that God supplies all that will nourish and sustain our souls. And ultimately, the manna in Exodus chapter 16 points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, a crucified but risen and reigning Savior who is indeed our life. Listen, if we live for earthly bread alone, When we're deprived of the earthly bread, how do we respond? Do we lash out in unbelief and anger and grumble as they did in Exodus 16 and John 6? Do we take a prolonged bath in self-pity? Do we blame God? Or do we ultimately ask ourselves, whose dream am I really living for? And what is the ultimate aim of my life? See, manna calls us from depending on the arm of the flesh and the flesh that strengthens that arm into simple will dependence upon the living God who has promised that He will satisfy all our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus, the living bread come down from heaven. Fathers, we bow before you in closing tonight. We, uh, we recognize that our hearts are prone to wonder as the hymnist um, so clearly and vividly reminds us 
Uh, we recognize that that we um, we confront a culture that would appeal to earthly, temporal, sensual values to the deprivation of our own souls. And yet we pray for a grace that would constantly bring us back um, in grateful, humble dependence upon you. Uh, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the fullness of salvation that you offer to us in him. May you take the varied circumstances of our lives tonight and reveal in them more of your grace, more of your sufficiency. And in and through them, make us more like your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.